Back to the book of Romans we go this Lord's Day morning to the 15th chapter. We'll pick up at verse 7. Last week we found Paul here in Romans 15 making an exquisite argument for the importance of unity in the church. Hardly anything strikes closer to the heart of our Savior than the unity of his bride, the church for whom he died. And Paul, remember, cut through all the false bases on which church unity might be pursued and all of the petty differences that threaten to divide Christians from one another to bring us to the point that we are one because we are one in Christ. Our unity, remember, transcends our differences. Our unity is not focused on those things that are temporal or that are a matter of liberty or of conscience or of opinion. We are in unity with one another precisely and only because we are in unity with Christ, every one of us. Now then, the passage before us, Paul continues that same theme again. This time it is Jew and Gentile, racially speaking, who are, despite everything that would otherwise divide them from one another, especially in the Roman world, who are one in Christ, in his church. Now we certainly could have returned to that theme this week with great profit to the unity of the church, that true unbreakable unity that is ours in Christ. But there is another theme woven into these verses that we'll consider instead. It is this, our hope in Christ Jesus. So we follow the mind of the apostle, as he's called the apostle of the Gentiles. He takes us speeding along, as we so often have experienced with Paul, from one truth to another. Here we go, lickety-split, from unity to hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, take your word now, your very word, and by the same spirit who inspired the apostle Paul to write, to to, uh, dictate these words, now also to illumine them to our hearts. And not only that, Father, but to apply them, that we may live on them. For indeed, your word is our life. Speak. For your servants are listening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 15, we begin at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy 
and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Have you noticed in these recent days how hope is on the wane in the nation in which we live? We might at one time have placed hope in the American system of jurisprudence. We, we had hope for justice, but our own court system sidestepping the law itself in 1973 opened the floodgates and after which millions upon millions of children have died in the womb. We might have been tempted to place our hope in politicians. And indeed, every four years or so, we are tempted to do it again, to pin our expectations, our dreams, our confidence on this candidate or on that candidate. During a political season like this Even the word hope gets bantered around back and forth over and again. You may have been tempted to put your hope in the financial system, in the market, in stocks and bonds, and in the government's ability to oversee and guide a free market. But that hope has been dashed too. And retired people who saved all their lives have watched over these couple of weeks in helplessness as their savings have disappeared from the balance sheets right before their eyes. And now a national government calls us to place our hope once again in it and its ability to bring us through this financial crisis. As a matter of fact, there are all manner of things that beckon to you to place your hope in them. Idols of all sorts seek to become the object of your hope. In old days and still in many places in the world today, there are idols of wood and stone. Or for us, they are idols of paper, like currency and bank and stock statements. They are flesh and blood, political candidates. They are steel and bulletproof glass, our military might. They look us in the mirror. Every day we are tempted and indeed give in to the temptation to pin our hope on, of all things, ourselves and our own abilities and our own strengths which our truth be told here today and gone the next. But uh, Christians, with their Bibles open, know better than all of that, particularly in a day of seeming hopelessness. They know there is only one source of hope, and that happens also to be our only object of hope as well. You will not hear the economists or the candidates mention it. Your psychologist and the social worker, rarely, if ever. But Paul says here that this is his very name, the God of hope. Now, in some ways, we should be glad for a day of despair. We should be glad 
to find ourselves shaken so deeply that we may have shaken from us every false basis of hope, every idol in which we have trusted. It is good for us to hear, even if it is painful, the words of that popular cartoon character, you're hopeless, Charlie Brown. Some of you here this morning have come recently, perhaps, to a sense of hopelessness. In every direction you turn, from your work to your very family, all you see is hope gone. I would not make light of your pain. The scripture knows how desperately difficult life truly is. Distress and sorrow and a sense of lostness, of being adrift with no discernible future is not a condition unknown to the Bible. In fact, it tells us flat out that apart from Christ, that is exactly what we are. What all of you were, what some of you continue to be, without hope and without God in the world. That's no longer the case for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, even the believing Gentiles, Paul says, which means you and me. We are the Gentiles of whom the Apostle writes in this passage before us. Remember that God first dealt with the Jews. He was the God of the Hebrews. It was the nation. It was the people of Israel who were his particular focus, almost, almost exclusively before Christ's coming. That was the case. They were his covenant people, Gentiles, such as most, if not all of us here are, We were, so to speak, on the outside. We were out in the cold, on the outside looking in. This was not God's intent for always. And even in what we call the Old Testament, there is clear expectation and anticipation that we too would find true, lasting, conquering, and persevering certain hope. Brothers and sisters in Christ, dear flock, we have hope. And we dare to stand in hope today because God is true to his word. Go back with me to verse 4. For whatever was written, Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He's talking about the Old Testament, of course, the Bible of his own day. Whatever was written in it, he says, whatever was written in it, open your Old Testament, open your Bible where you like. Whatever was written in it, he says, was written for our encouragement. And we might have hope. A Bible, contrary to the view of many who hate it, does not bring with it despair. Oh, it condemns us. It does. 
The Bible condemns us in our sins, to be sure, but not as an end in itself. When the Bible condemns us, when it shows us the sinfulness of our sins and our, our lostness and our rebellion in bold colors against God and his law, it does not do so merely to condemn. It condemns us in order to save us. It shows us our sin, not only that, that we may see it for the ugliness that it is, but so that we may run to him who has the solution, the only one who has the solution for our sin. It shows us our hopelessness in order to direct us and send us running to the source, the only source of true hope. And that's exactly what Paul does in this series of quotations from the Old Testament that have directly to do with you and with me. The Gentiles, did you catch that litany there beginning in verse 9? As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. All of them from the Old Testament. All of them having to do with the hope that you and I have. All of them different ways of repeating the truth that God had told Abraham long before that, that his offspring, in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just the Hebrews, in other words, but the Gentiles too. Now, there are a couple of patterns here that are worth you're considering and taking note of in the passages that Paul has chosen to quote here. One pattern is this. The complete representation here of the entire Old Testament in the passages that he quotes. Paul not only quotes from the writings, as we sometimes call them, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament with his two quotations from the Psalms, one of which, by the way, was also quoted in 2 Samuel in the history of not only from the writings, but he also quotes from what we call the law, from Deuteronomy, and also from the prophets, specifically Isaiah. So here our hope, as Gentile Christians, is founded in all of Scripture, in all of God's Word, not just one part or another, in every way God expresses in His Word our hope, in the writings, in the law, in the prophets, everywhere. This is how firm and how certain and how sure your confidence, your hope must be. God has said it. He has promised it, but he has not merely said it. He has said it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. He has repeated it and repeated it and repeated it in history, in poetry, in prophecy, in the law to you. I am faithful to you, Gentile. Hope in me and in me 
alone. And this, by the way, is no mere sort of hope so hope. This is not the hope of the little boy who defined hope as wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. This hope is certain. This hope is certainty. This hope is what has been described as future faith that, that looks ahead and seeing what is certain to come anchors itself to that salvation to come and draws that ground to the present day and stands on it. That is hope. That's the hope we have. There's another pattern to notice, and that is the intensification of our hope as Paul goes along. First, he quotes from Psalm 18, King David saying to the Lord this, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. A Jew, a Jewish king, no less, and a foreshadow of Christ himself, don't miss that, David says, David was to I mean, rather says to the Lord that he will praise him among the Gentiles. And did not Jesus do exactly that himself? But watch now. In the next quotation from Deuteronomy 32, it is the Gentiles that are directly addressed now and invited, commanded even, to join with the Jews. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. But it gets even stronger In the next quotation, it's not merely an invitation now to join with God's people. It is a call to the Gentiles directly and alone as the people of God to worship him. Verse 11, praise the Lord, you Gentiles, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And then, quoting from Isaiah, this hope comes to its highest and purest expression, The root of Jesse. Who is that? We'll sing about it again in the next couple of months. About him again. This is Jesus, of course. The root of Jesse, Isaiah writes, will come. Even he who arises to rule. Whom? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. 700 years before Christ comes. Isaiah says he is coming to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Dear fellow Gentiles, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is at pains to make this perfectly clear to you. The point is not merely that we must never give up hope as if this were some political slogan from another vacuous Republican or Democratic convention speech. The point is that we have hope in Christ Jesus, and because of Christ Jesus, we have hope. There is hope for us Gentiles, real, eternal, blessed hope, because Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, not just the Jews. Yes, Jesus came for the Jews. Jesus, the Bible says, came to the Jews, who, by the way, rejected him. Not totally, of course, though in the main. 
They did not come only for the Jews, but for all of his sheep, who he himself said were not only of the fold of the Jews. I have other sheep, Jesus said, that I'm going to be bringing. He who is the hope, the God of hope, is also the God of the nations, Jewish and Gentile. Now, here's the marvelous thing. God not only wants for you to have hope, he wants for you to abound in hope. According to verse 13, the kind of hope that the world offers by contrast is always limited, isn't it? It's always limited, a limited kind of hope. Hope in a political candidate, which is just imagined hope anyway, if you haven't learned that by now, learn it today. Usually it begins to diminish on the very day he or she is inaugurated. Any hope that you fix on the candidates and the races this fall will prove to be but a mist hovering over shifting sand. Hope in money in the stock market is, well, you all know now what that is. Hope in the government always always, always leads to disappointment. Hope in people fails because people are sinful and they're fallen creatures. And because they're mortal, they die. Houses burn. Jobs are lost. At the best, all these things can give us but a limited kind of hope, very temporal, passing, and quite frankly, false hope. But the God of all hope, on the other hand, is infinite and eternal and unchanging and utterly true to his promises, to his word. Only in him is there hope that abounds, hope that has no limit, hope that, that, that is as large and as lasting and as, as, as true and as trustworthy as God himself, as his own name. There's only one way you may enter this hope. You may abound with hope and overflow with hope. It is there in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You see, this hope does not belong to every Gentile any more than it belongs to every Jew. It belongs only to those who believe. Only to those who have faith in him. Now notice I do not say simply those who have faith. Faith is another term like hope that gets bannered around these days but has been drained of its meaning. Faith is meaningless. Hope is absolutely meaningless. That is, apart from an object. Have faith. Just have faith. Everybody says it these days. Just have faith. Keep the faith. Billy Joel sings, keep the faith. What's that? It's meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Faith in what? Faith in whom? 
Hold on to hope. How many political candidates haven't you heard? <laughs> Just hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Hold on to what? Hope in what? Hope in whom? Faith and hope without objects are, are they're sinking boats. They're full of holes. They give you only the illusion of safety. Believe in the Lord. Trust in Him. There you find hope. There you abound in hope for this life, for the next life. What does it mean to believe then in the Lord, to trust in Him, to have faith in Him? Well, simply this. It means to take God at His word. To believe what He says. To believe Him when He tells us who He is. To believe Him when He tells us what He has done and continues to do to this day for His people. It means, of course, Believing in him means surrendering your life to him. That is right at the core of what it means to trust him. It means to give him all of yourself and all of your life, surrendering to to him completely. You must rely on him not only for your daily bread, but for your very life and for eternity. You must treat that sacrifice he made of himself on the cross for what it is sufficient for you, more than sufficient, more than sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin, for your having broken his law, every one of us. More than sufficient regardless of whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. He has come, verse 8, Jesus has come to become a servant to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews, to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and, Paul goes on, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That is why Jesus came from the heights of heaven's glory. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And to you, Gentile, he says today, to you, he says, trust in me. Place your faith in me. And I will give you everything. Absolutely everything. I will give you hope, hope that abounds, hope that overflows your heart, overflows your life, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you're facing right now. Only believe in me. But I can't. I hear you saying, you, I, I can't. Believe him. I can't trust in him. After all, I've never seen him. I've never touched him. That's true. You have not seen him, and you have not touched him. But others have. The Bible contains that record. And what is more, though you may not be able to touch 
Him, He still touches people today. Just as surely as He did then. You cannot believe in Him. Yes, that is true as far as it goes. No one can believe in Him unless, unless the Holy Spirit gives Him faith, gives you faith. Just why Paul adds there in verse 13, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit goes, can't, becomes can. And where the Spirit goes, won't, becomes will. And that remains true all your life. As a Christian, Jesus said to his disciples, remember in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. But, as the angel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing, even your salvation, is not impossible with God. Even granting you the gift of faith to believe and then crowning his own gift with the gift of hope. And not just hope, but hope abounding. And then where he stays, faith stays. And hope grows more certain and pervades the life more fully and completely. Thomas Kelly captures both sides of this matter of believing and the Holy Spirit's power for us to believe. And these two stanzas of his hymn with which we conclude. On the one hand, he writes, and I say to you today, in God's name, trust in him, ye saints forever. He is faithful, changing never. Neither force nor guile can sever those he loves from him. And even as it is we who must trust and believe in him who must exercise faith in the Lord, it is the Lord in the final analysis who must keep us in the faith. Keep us, Lord. Oh, keep us cleaving to thyself and still believing till the hour of our receiving promised joys with thee. Amen.